My Uncle Jim uh, lived out in West Texas. I often thought as a child growing up that if you went to the end of the world and turned right, you were at his place. It was that far out in the boonies. And uh, it was so far out in the boonies that when his boys were uh, teenagers and getting to that place of socializing, that's another word for dating, and uh, that <clears throat> before they would leave the, uh, the ranch, he would uh, write down the mileage on the car. And he said if they didn't put 400 miles on the car, he knew they were up to something they shouldn't be up to. And that was one of the ways he kept track. He often had little words of wisdom that uh, uh, fell upon deaf ears for the most part. But some of them I remember. One of them he said was, when your children come home from being out someplace, you have three questions. Use them well. If you ask them, did you have fun? You'll get a monosyllabic answer, yes. Who, who were you with? Friends. And now you're down, down to only one question. So it was something to learn, and it's something that I've, I've tried to learn over my years of dealing with my own children, as well as uh, dealing with uh, counseling situations and everything, uh, to learn what are good questions. What are good questions that uh, get a, a, a response that I want? Good questions gain good information, not just throwaway information, but you ask a good question and you're, you can learn something. Good questions don't provide easy answers, like monosyllabic, yes, no, uh-huh, I guess that's two syllables. Uh, but they don't give away an easy answer. One great question that I, you have heard me use before and I think is a great question is the one that you see here. If you were to die tonight and you stood before God and he asked you, what reason do you have that I should let you into my heaven? How would you answer the question? I've asked this question of, of many, many people. And even people that you think are, are very well churched, the answer that you get sometimes is very startling. When you ask somebody who has been a part of your church, and they even have been a part of, of the membership, and you ask them this question, and they, and they come back and they say, well, I, I hope that I've been good enough and that, that he will look at my, the things that I've done. I'm not that bad of a person. You know, and, and alarm bells go off in my mind when that happens because I'm realizing that in, in the answer to the question, you learn what a person is trusting in for life after death. You're finding out what is the real root of their faith. What is it truly in? So good questions. Over the last several weeks, couple of months, I guess, I've had this thing rambling around in my mind, uh, thinking about the questions that Jesus asked. Now, some of you who were here were uh, in the class that I taught for a few weeks at the beginning of this year, and you may remember some of the things that, that we talked about because of one of those questions. Uh, 
But as I thought about the questions that Jesus asked and the answers that they solicited and the insight that they gave, I've been thinking about how does that apply to me? What if Jesus were to stand here and he were to ask me one of those questions? What would it reveal about my faith? What would it reveal about my relationship with him? What would it reveal about my relationship even with the world? So I want us to think for a few moments about questions that Jesus asked. Now, I realized that my uncle was very, very wise when he said, you have three questions. I may exceed that today. You know, good advice is only that advice which you follow, right? But let's see how this, how this rolls along. In John chapter 1, you're familiar with this passage. Uh, John the Baptist has, is out uh, baptizing out uh, east of the Jordan, out in the wilderness. Jesus has gone there and has come to John, and John has baptized him. And John has given testimony, and the other gospels speak to this, uh, has given testimony that God had told him that the one whom he saw the Spirit descending upon and remaining, this was the Messiah. And John had said, I didn't know who it was, even though he's my cousin. I didn't know who it was, but when I saw the Spirit descend upon him and remain, I knew that this was the fulfillment of, of my purpose here. The next day, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by, and he said, repeating himself from the day before, behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. And Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, now here's the first question, what do you seek? And I want you to stop and think for just a moment. I know you can read on and you can see the rest of it, and you know the response that they made, and we're going to talk about that. But as you and I even thought about coming here this morning, as you and I, as we have, have done our daily uh, devotional time, how would we answer this question if Jesus were to look at us and say, what are you seeking? What are you seeking when you came here? What are you seeking when you open, uh, open your Bible uh, every day and, and read and meditate upon the Word? You know, are we uh, just simply trying to put a little check mark in our spiritual do-gooder book that we've, yeah, we've done that, yep, check that off, got that done, yes, sir, that's it? Or, or is there something that we are seeking? So these men follow him. And they, he asked them, what do you seek? What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which translated means, teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the 10th hour. 
for years as I have taught this passage, I've looked at their response as being a throwaway response. You know, like being caught like a deer with the, in, the, in, the, in your eyes and not knowing what to answer. But as I've been thinking more and more about the questions that Jesus was asking, and as more I thought about this, I realized, first of all, this is not a trivial question. Just as I've highlighted already, it's not a, it's not, it's not a, a trivial question. What are you seeking? So look at these two men. They have been following. We don't know how long. They have been followers of John the Baptist. And they have been listening to his teaching. And now they are following whom they believe is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he asks them, what are you looking for? It's not a trivial question. And their answer was not trivial. Their answer was, it was a response from where they were. Remember, this question was not asked in a vacuum. The nation of Israel had been on its uh, on, on its ear, on its edge. It had been uh, anticipating the coming of the Messiah. F prophecies were being fulfilled around them. They, they had read about the things in the past. 30 years ago for them was not that long ago when the angels had sung outside of Bethlehem when travelers from afar had come and been seen going to a house in Bethlehem, when all of the male children under the age of two had been killed, all fulfillment of prophecy. John the Baptist was clear in his message. He repeatedly said, I am not the one to come I am a voice crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way. And people were flocking to John to hear his message of repentance. 400 years before, Malachi, in the last word that Israel had from God until an angel appeared, were these words. Behold, I'm going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Now today, as Pastor Hector has reminded us, we celebrate Palm Sunday, and certain scholars have calculated that from the time that the word went out to rebuild Jerusalem and the temple until that Palm Sunday was the prophetic time. 
to when Messiah would be cut off. How Messiah had came, uh, had, had come into the city to the accolades of, of the uh, Psalms of Ascent, the Psalms that were sung when they were crowning a king. And he came into the city and he went to the temple. And some of the saddest words I can recall in Scripture was he looked around and there was nothing going on and he left. Messiah came to the temple and was cut off. Actually, God's instructions to seek are very clear. The psalmist says, Hear, O Lord, when I cry with my voice. Be gracious to me and answer me when you said, Seek my face. My heart said to you, Your face, O Lord, I will seek. And another psalmist said, glory in his holy name. Let the heart of those who seek the Lord be glad. Seek the Lord in his strength. Seek his face continuously. Jeremiah, as he was delivering uh, the, the words of doom and of, of judgment for Israel, and yet the promise, he said, you will seek me and you will find me. When you search for me with all your heart. Jesus even gave instructions about seeking his face when he said, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. Who do you seek? The question, what do you seek? What were these disciples of John seeking? Very clear. They were, you know, they're, they're following along. They've, they've just had this declaration of who he is, but they wanted to know who Jesus is. As you read that passage further, one of the two heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He found first his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah. He went, he encountered, he visited with him, he got to know him, and the result was the affirmation that he knew that they had found the Messiah. You do not learn who Jesus is without spending time with him. You do not get to know who Jesus is unless you're willing to spend time with him. In fact, Peter, later on, in his final words, said this, you therefore, beloved brethren, knowing beforehand, be on your guard that you're not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness, but grow in the grace and knowledge 
of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In the Greek language, there are several words, two major words, that are translated into English as knowledge. One of them speaks of a cerebral knowledge, of simple intellectual knowledge. One of my uh, favored translations of the New Testament was written by a British scholar by the name of J.B. Phillips. He was a renowned uh, Greek scholar. And so as a part of his Greek scholarship, he translated the New Testament. But he was not a believer. But he translated the New Testament. In the process of translating the New Testament, and by the way, one of the, one of the most dangerous things an unbeliever can do is read the Bible. In the process of translating the Bible, the New Testament, he became a believer, became a follower of Jesus Christ. He went back. My version that I have on my desk is his second edition. Because he realized that in his prejudice against Christianity, he had mistranslated certain passages. And so we went back and redid. He was growing in the grace and the knowledge. See, it's not just intellectual knowledge. Just knowing about Jesus. Just knowing the, even the historicity of Jesus is not the knowledge Peter is speaking of. When I was a boy, about my main topic that I was, would read about was flying. I read everything I could find about how to fly an airplane. I had a lot of intellectual knowledge about how do you fly an airplane. But I did not know how to fly an airplane. I found out when I was 18. You see, the word that is translated here is having an experiential knowledge. I have a knowledge of how to fly an airplane now. I can do it. At least I could. It's been a while. I think I still could. But there's a vast difference. I can know about the Messiah, but when I meet the Messiah and have an experiential relationship, knowledge with him, that changes everything. So the question Jesus asked and asks us, I believe, what do you seek? Are you seeking an escape from past failures? Are you seeking an escape from that which controls you? What are you seeking as you come to Jesus? The next passage we want to look at is also in the Gospel of John. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery, and having set her in the center of the court, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. Now in the law of Moses, 
uh, has commanded us to stone such women, what then do you say? They were saying this, testing him, so that they might have grounds for accusing him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground. But when they persisted in asking him, he straightened up and he said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. And again he stooped down and he wrote on the ground. When they heard it, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones. And he was left alone and the woman where she was in the center of the court. Straightening up, Jesus said to her, woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? The New Living Translation translates it, where are your accusers? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, I do not condemn you either. Go, from now on, sin no more. I find the question, where are your accusers, very, very significant. Now, there are a couple of things we need to set straight uh, about what was going on here. First of all, we have to realize the scribes and Pharisees were not there because they had a religious fervor for righteous uh, judgment. They were not there because they wanted uh, to see something high and holy done. If they were interested in the biblically righteous action, they would have brought the man as well. Because if you go back and you read in the Old Testament where this instruction comes from, it says that they are both supposed to be stoned. John, understanding this, gave the statement that they really weren't there for that purpose but rather they were trying to trap Jesus. See, here is the trap. If Jesus said, well, then, they have, then she needs to be stoned, then he was in violation of Roman law because Rome said the Jews could not kill people for religious purposes. If he said, just let her go, it's okay, then they could say that he was in violation of Moses, of the law. So they were trying to put him, as they often did, into a position where there were no winners except them. But Jesus always seemed to find the righteous way out. Remember this as you look at this interchange between him and the woman. Jesus did not come to condemn. John 3, 17, Jesus said, I've not come into the world to condemn the world. The world is already condemned. He came to redeem. He came to save. He came to save this woman who had been caught in the very act of adultery. He even came to save those scribes and Pharisees who were trying to trap him. He didn't come to condemn. We're already condemned. Paul said it in Romans chapter 3 that we are all under condemnation. 
Apart from Jesus Christ, every living human being upon the face of this earth at this moment, apart from their relationship with Jesus Christ, is condemned. That is truth from the Word of God. Now, Jesus didn't ignore the sin issue. He didn't just wave a magic wand and say, that's fine. I realize you're having a tough day. It's okay. Just go on about your life. No, he confronted the sin. Do not sin again. Very clear. And so she went away. It's great for us to remember this. What Paul said in Romans chapter 8, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Where are your accusers? If Jesus were to stand and to to look you in the eye and he were to ask the question, where are your accusers? You might say, I don't have any accusers. Well, Yes, there are accusers. You know, we have to realize that Satan accuses God before man. And and the accuser may be at work in your life and in my life as he questions the very truth of God's Word. Pastor David has been preaching through uh, the book of Jude and, 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 and addressing these issues. In the very beginning, back in Genesis... Satan came to Adam and Eve, and the very first thing that he did was to question the Word of God. God didn't really say that. God didn't really mean that. Essentially, God is a meanie, because God knows if you eat from this tree, you will be like God's. How often have you heard that whispered in your ear? He accuses God before man. We also know from the book of Job that he is accusing you, or he accused Job, he accuses man before God. And the book of Revelation tells us that he is the accuser of the brethren. Have you ever had that softly whispered Thing about so-and-so, about what a terrible person they are, about how deceptive they are, about how they try to control everything, about how they, well, you can fill in the blank. A number of years ago, there was a movie, and I, I, I spent a little bit of time uh, last night, trying to remember the name of it, uh, but it was a it was a it was a flying movie, so it had to be good had to be a good movie. 
uh, and it, it was a flying movie, and, and it was about this guy who had died uh, as uh, uh, dropping water on fires, and he came back, and he was able to uh, he was able to communicate in some way to the guys that were living. You know, he was telling me you got to have a have a an itch on your nose, and the guy's got a greasy hand, so he rubs his nose. You know, chuckle, chuckle. Those, that, by the way, in that movie, uh, the guy finally escaped. And heaven, according to that movie, is having your hair cut by Audrey Hepburn. <laughs> uh, I, I, I just tell it like it is, folks. That's, <laughs> that's the way it is. One of the things that Satan loves to do as an accuser, is to accuse you to your face. Those thoughts that say, I'm really not worthy. I, I, I'm not worthy of doing these things. Or I, I'm, I am such a bad person. I, I just seem to always mess up. And these things that say, I'm really not a lovable person. How could God love me with all the ways that I have failed, that I keep on failing? You ever heard those whispers? The Satan accusing, bringing those words of accusation. Satan's words of accusation are absolutely controlling. When Satan is convincing me, and I am convinced that what he is saying about me, I am immobilized. And I am not useful in the kingdom. Accusations versus conviction of sin. Accusations, I've got three things. If there's an accusation, there's no remedy. <laughs> you know, if, if, if it's such a global statement, I am a terrible person, I am a failure in life, how do you remedy that? Therefore, there's no hope. And you are useless, at least in your own eyes. When there is conviction of sin, read through Scripture. Examine your own life. When God convicts us of sin, he is very specific. What you have just done is sin. What you have just thought about that person is sin. What you are doing in practice is sin. And there is a remedy. What's the remedy? Repentance. Confession making the choice to go and do that which is right. And therefore, there is hope. And when there is hope, you become useful in God's kingdom. Tradition tells us that the woman who was brought before him, in the very, having been taken in the very act of adultery, became one of the faithful followers of Jesus and Scripture speaks of a group of women who traveled with the disciples 
providing meals for them. And she was one of those, according to tradition. Number three, and I guess we're going to be stuck with three. Well, it'll be four. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, and others Elijah, but still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. But my Father, who is in heaven. Question. Who do the people say that I am? And immediately we say, well, Jesus was an egomaniac. He wanted to know what everybody thought about him, right? No. Did you notice that he didn't ask who the, what the scribes and Pharisees, who they thought he was? He asked who the people said that he was. Why is it important? First of all, it's a starting point for proclamation. When I know how a person views Jesus as to who he is, it becomes a starting point for a conversation. Now, I realize that we're a little uncomfortable with, with, with some of these passages, like 2 Corinthians 5.11, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. You and I are probably very uncomfortable, I know that I am, in this idea of needing to go head on head, on head mano on mano, and persuade someone about who Jesus Christ really is. But Paul's admonition is pretty clear. How do I persuade someone? The Apostle Paul, as you see here in Acts 17, he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles in the marketplace every day. If I know a person's view of Jesus, it's going to make a difference in the way in which I talk to them. If, I know, if, I, if I'm talking to somebody who has, who has been well-churched, I can speak to them in a different way. I can, I can begin to draw them with the knowledge that they have to a place where they can begin to confront with who Jesus really is. If I'm going cross-culturally, as many of our international workers are doing now, to people who have never even heard of Jesus, I'm going to have to approach it from a completely different angle. Have, have, have you ever uh, seen the little movie, uh, Peace Child? Any of you? It needs to be something that we show. 
although also the book, Peace Child. This is a story of a, of a missionary family who moved into a, a third culture, third world uh, village in uh, Erie and Jaya, and uh, they began translating the Bible uh, into that village's language. And as they began to get to the place where they could, could communicate well, of course they wanted to start talking about Jesus. One of the things that they found out was that in that particular village, it was a really nifty, I can't believe I just used that word, really nifty, really cool thing to deceive somebody. If you got somebody to fall for some sort of uh, deception, you were the good guy. So as they started telling the story of Jesus, who did they see as the hero of the story? Judas. What a great deception he pulled off. Make him think I'm his friend and then turn him over to his enemies so he can be killed. Judas was a good guy. These missionaries really struggled with how do we bring the gospel here? Well, a battle, a war brought out, uh, uh, happened between two villages, this village and another, and a lot of people were killed. And finally, one of the, uh, the chief of one village and the chief of the other village got together and they said, we've got to stop this. But how do you come up with a peace treaty when you know that the other person is really just going to try to deceive you? So how, how do you... And so that's what Don Richardson asked. And what unfolded for them gave them the knowledge of how to present Jesus. You see, within their culture, they had a, uh, a little piece of, uh, of tradition. And that was if the chief of this tribe had a boy child, infant, they would form a long line of the, of the villages and that boy would be handed from person to person to person to person until finally he was born again into the family of the chief of the other village. And as long as that child lived, there would be peace between the two villages. I get chill bumps just thinking about it. Guess what Don Richardson said? Hey, 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 everybody. Jesus was the peace child. And the people in the village said, aha. And the village turned to Jesus Christ. Knowing who people Jesus, what people say about Jesus also helps to recognize the origin of subtle lies. Again, the book of Jude. The study of people who are, who are trying to deceive the church, who appear as, as sheep, but they're, in, they're, they're wolves in sheep's clothing, 
who appear to be people who are followers of Jesus Christ, but they begin to bring in falsehood and deception. We need to know what the people say, what they believe about Jesus. Obviously, we have to leave with the last one when he asked them, what do you say? Who do you say that I am? If it's not personal, then it's nothing. If it's not personal, then it's nothing. If it's not a deep, soul-changing, life-changing, personal relationship, then it is nothing. A Jesus who is less than eternally, the less than eternally existing triune God cannot save. This is basic doctrine in the church. He is not just a good man. He is not just a prophet. And there are those around us who go under the guises of being Christian people who do not believe that. They believe that he is a created being or that he was really a good man who the Spirit of God came upon and used him and, and departed before he died. Or he was just the Son of God, but not eternally existing. We can go on with all the different heresies. Who do I say that he is? Again, as a starting point for proclamation. Who is Jesus in my life? How has Jesus Christ changed my life? How is, how is Jesus Christ changing my life? And it helps me to recognize the origin of subtle lies. I was told that when you work in a bank, or especially if you work for some governmental agencies, to detect counterfeit bills, they don't teach you all the different ways in which a counterfeit bill is produced. You study the original. You study the original so that you just glance at something and it registers this is not the real thing. As you and I, in our walk with Jesus, know the real thing. If something doesn't jive, if something doesn't fit, it should be the Spirit of God who says, something not right here. My wife is really good at this. Uh, picking up something and reading it from supposedly a Christian perspective, and she'll say, something about this isn't right. I don't know what it is. I need to find out what it is. But just that initial reaction, something here doesn't 
fit. So, I ask you these four questions. What do you seek? Where are your accusers? Who are your accusers? What do people around you say Jesus, who Jesus is? But more importantly, who do you know who Jesus is? Let's pray together. Father, I thank you that your word admonishes us that this is eternal life, to know Jesus Christ, your son. Not mere intellectual assent, but a deep, abiding, continuous trust and obedience to who he is. I pray, Father, that we as the body of Christ would reflect that truth in everything that we do and in every place that we go. And I ask it in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.